Ram, founder Acharya Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai, Anantakoti Vaishnava Rinda Ki Jai, Namacharya Shri Haridas Thakur Ki Jai, Prem Shikaho Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Adoita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaur Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai, Shri Shri Radha Krishna Go Gopina Shaimakunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhana Ki Jai, Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai, Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai, Navadrit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai, Gangamai Jamur Devi Ki Jai, Dulsi Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale, Srimate Bhaktivedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Sarasvati Devi, Goravani Patrane Nirvasesis and Nirvadi Paskachade Satarane, Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Uta Padakamalam, Sri Gurun Vaishnavamscha, Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Bitams Tam Sajivam. Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Bitamscha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya January 10th, 2012. This is a Skype class on Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 14, The Disappearance of Lord Krishna. And we're doing two texts, 39 and 40. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Brastate Jabibasime. Alabda mano vyajnata. Alabda mano vyajnata. Kimbatata chiroshita. Catch it. Catch it. Catch it. Weather. 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 K. 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 Your. Ananayam. Ananayam. Health is all right. Health is all right. Tata. Tata. My dear brother. My dear brother. Brasta. 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 Bereft. Bereft. Tejaha. Luster. 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 Bibasi. Appear. 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 May. 
To me. To me. Alabda manaha. Without respect. Avagnataha. Neglected. Kim. Weather. Va. Or. Tata. My dear brother. My dear brother. brother. Because of long residence. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. My brother Arjuna, please tell me whether your health is all right. You appear to have lost your bodily luster. Is this due to others disrespecting and neglecting you because of your long stay at Dwarka? Purport. From all angles of vision, the Maharaj inquired from Arjuna about the welfare of Dwarka, but he concluded at last that as long as Lord Sri Krishna himself was there, nothing inauspicious could happen. But at the same time, Arjuna appeared to be bereft of his bodily luster, and thus the king inquired of his personal welfare and asked so many vital questions. Text 40. Kachin nabi hato bhavai shabda bir amangalahai nadatam uktan artibya ashaya tat pratishutam. Has someone addressed you with unfriendly words or threatened you? Could you not give charity to one who asked? Or could you not keep your promise to someone? Purport. A ksatriya or a rich man is sometimes visited by persons who are in need of money. When they are asked for donation, it is the duty of the possessor of wealth to give in charity in consideration of the person, place, and time. If a ksatriya or a rich man fails to comply with this obligation, he must be very sorry for this discrepancy. Similarly, one should not fail to keep his promise to give in charity. These discrepancies are sometimes causes of despondency, and thus failing, a person becomes subject to criticism, which might also be the cause of Arjuna's plight. Let's read the two translations again. My dear Arjuna, please tell me whether your health is all right. You appear to have lost your bodily luster. Is this due to others disrespecting and neglecting you because of your long stay at Dwarka? Has someone addressed you with unfriendly words or threatened you? Could you not give charity to one who asked, or could you not keep your promise to someone? So here's Yudhisthira showing his concern for Arjuna. He's concerned about his health, his physical health. He's noticing his luster, his tejas. Tejaha, luster, or strength, is diminished. And he's wondering, maybe there's a physical malady. And he's also wondering if maybe there's an emotional malady. He's saying, first of all, maybe somebody disrespected you because you stayed in Dwarka for so long. So this, of course, reminds us of familiarity breeds contempt. He said, maybe what happened was somebody was nasty to you. They were said nasty words to you, unfriendly words. Or maybe they even threatened you. And maybe it wasn't something external to you. Maybe the cause of your despondency is that you didn't live up to your own ideals. You weren't able to give in charity. You couldn't keep your promise. In some way, 
you disappointed yourself. So it's interesting that Maharaj Yudhisthira is using uh, means of communication that are very similar to what's being taught today by various psychologists in the name of empathic communication or nonviolent communication. He's basically asking Arjuna, how do you feel? Do you feel bad because people were disrespectful to you? What kind of feelings did you have? Which of your basic needs were violated? He's talking here about uh, basically the need of dignity and respect. In fact, the Sanskrit word here is manaha, respect. So did you, did you not get respected by others? Or have you lost some respect for yourself? because you're not satisfied with your own behavior. So did someone else disrespect you, or are you disrespecting yourself? And we all know that when we're in a situation where we can't maintain our dignity, what's called in modern parlance self-esteem, but when we can't maintain our our sense of dignity, of self-respect, where we're treated badly by others in in a disrespectful manner by others, we become despondent. Right, Prabhupada's talking here that uh, he uses the word despondency. He says these discrepancies are sometimes causes of despondency. We become sad, we become uh, disappointed, we may even display physical symptoms here, like using, losing our bodily luster. So sometimes we think that to become a pure devotee of the Lord means that one has no more feelings or one just doesn't care about anything anymore. One doesn't care how one's treated, or one doesn't have a, some self-dignity. But here we see that's not the case, that these very great Mahabhagavata devotees of the Lord, they have some sense that a person should be able to think well of themselves and also to be treated with dignity. Now, why is this so? This is because that's our natural position. It's explained so nicely in the third canto of Srimad Bhagavatam in description of the kingdom of God, how there's great mutual appreciation and respect among all the residents of the spiritual world, including the flowers, including the birds. So the flowers that are full of many colors and varieties of fragrance, they're offering their respect to Tulsi, which... Of course, Tulsi has a wonderful transcendental fragrance that attracts even the impersonless. But from our material point of view, the Tulsi plant is not uh, beautiful like a rose or a lotus, nor does it have some kind of fragrance like a gardenia or a lily. And in the same way, the birds in the spiritual world, they're stopping their singing to listen to the bees. Again, in, in this material world, the sound of the birds is very beautiful. Just the other day I was reading where Prabhupada said that the sound of the birds is the whisper of the voice of the Lord. Beautiful poetry in the Bhagavatam. Uh, But the bee's sound is not so attractive from a a material point of view. But in the spiritual world, the, the birds are giving respect to the bees. The colorful and fragrant flowers are giving respect to Tulsi. Everyone is appreciating. Everyone is showing respect. There's full sense of dignity. That's our home. That's where we come from. Prabhupada would often talk about how we're a fish out of water. You know, you take the, if you've ever had the misfortune to see people fishing, 
when they what they do is they catch the fish and then they leave it out of water and it's flapping, flapping, flapping until it suffocates. It can't breathe out of the water. So no matter what nice situation you make for the fish on the land, you can give it a nice bed and you can play beautiful music for it. You can give it food. You can give it a, a member of its same species of the opposite sex. You can give it praises, so many things. But without the, its natural element, it's simply suffering and dies. So we also, we're suffering outside of our natural element. And this natural element is a world of love, and love means respect. Without respect, there's no meaning of love. Not the kind, not honor. You know, manha also often means honor. And the devotees are not interested in the honor of this world. Like Mahaprabhu say, amanida manidena. I'm using the same word, manaha. Uh, and there, of course, we translate it often as respect. But when Prabhupada talks about what is humility, he uses the word honor. He said, one should not be eager to get honor of others. So I see this kind of respect that Maharaj Yudhisthira is talking about. He's not talking about worldly honor. He's not talking about something that's false and has to do just with the body. He's talking about basic dignity, a basic feeling of being uh, valued. So this is actually what happens in the spiritual world. This is the, the essential thing that a person needs to live. Without it, it's practically difficult to live. In fact, Krishna says that. He says, dishonor is worse than death. And it's a fact. I mean, the feeling of, of shame. It's perhaps one of the least desired of all the human emotions, of all the possible emotions, to feel shamed. To feel that one has lost one's basic uh, dignity. So the devotees, they're accustomed to being in that atmosphere. Uh, therefore, such great devotees like the Pandavas, they're admitting that without that atmosphere, one's luster, Tejas luster, one's strength, it becomes dissipated. It's interesting that Maharaj Yudhisthira says here that maybe they disrespected and neglected you because you were there for so long. So Prabhupada, in, in several places, talks about how one reason that one is no longer treated with dignity is that uh, familiarity breeds contempt, that one has been in a place for too long. And, and as I was thinking about this, you know, what does this mean that if one is in a place for too long, that people will treat you with disrespect. You know, how does that happen? And how is it possible to have a loving kind of respect that endures? I mean, again, we were saying, like, this respect isn't just some sort of honor. Uh, that's not what we mean. We mean the respect of love. You know, it's, it's very interesting that there's a number of researchers who've tried to figure out how you can tell whether or not a marriage is going to endure. And they figured out that the most important feature is whether or not there's respect. They said if they notice any contempt between the husband and wife, contempt meaning I'm better than you, you're lower than me, 
they say that marriage is in trouble. And the more contempt they see on the either on the part of either party, or to speak of both parties, then the sooner that that marriage is not going to last, or it's going to be a very unhappy marriage. So you cannot have love with contempt. It's opposite. Contempt is simply another word for pride. I'm better than you. You're lower. It just doesn't work. When you love somebody, you value them. Therefore, spiritual relationship, spiritual society means that there must be value. And yet, love also means one must be very familiar. One must be very intimate. It's interesting in the story of Devahuti and Kardama Muni. Prabhupada said that Devahuti served Kardama Muni with great intimacy and also with great respect. And Prabhupada said she did not serve Kardama Muni with the kind of intimacy that breeds contempt. So let's look at this intimacy breeds contempt things. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. We have a number of, of, of instances of this, of the negative side. We talked about the positive side with Devahuti. With Indra and Brihaspati, right? Indra's on his throne, his guru Brihaspati, shows up every day. And so one day when he showed up, Indra just said, eh, I don't have to pay any attention to him. And he didn't even acknowledge him. He didn't get up from his seat. He didn't offer pranams, nothing. At which point Brihaspati left, uh, used his powers to become invisible, and without his protection, the demons defeated the demigods. Another instance of familiarity breeds contempt is when Akura had taken the Shamantaka jewel and left the city of Dwarka because he was afraid that Krishna was going to punish him. And the citizens of Dwarka started worrying that without Akura, there was going to be all kinds of disturbances and famine and pestilence within the city. They didn't realize that because Krishna was there, how could there be any difficulty? Because they were seeing Krishna every day and they had a sense of familiarity with Krishna, they didn't really understand that he was their protector. And instead they were taking shelter of Akura. Another example is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu advising Jagirananda Pandi, who of course is a, in the mood of a Dwarka Vasi. He said, if you go to Vrindavan to see Sanatana Goswami, don't stay too long. That if you stay too long, you become too familiar with the residents of Vrindavan. And then you may become disrespectful to them. Uh, another example is that uh, Vasudev, instead of asking Krishna, his son, about the goal of life and the way to behave, he asked the great sages. Because he's thinking, oh, Krishna is my son. He didn't understand that Krishna is actually the supreme authority. And another example Prabhupada gives is uh, people from India, and we also see this with people who've been born into Krishna consciousness, they think, oh, I know everything about Krishna. I already know, I don't need to hear anything. They, they think, oh, Krishna is just somebody ordinary, right? Or they think, oh, yes, yes, we have Krishna, what good has it done? So those are examples of where people, having been around something or somebody for a long time, they no longer take it seriously, they no longer value it. It's just part of their environment, right? This is even in the Bible, that a preacher is never respected in his own home. And we see so many saintly persons who weren't valued by their family. You know, Srila Prabhupada, who says to his wife, well, is it tea or me? And she laughs and says, oh, I guess I'll take the tea then. <laughs> and she doesn't value him. 
She doesn't value what she has. Uh, the same thing happened with Ramanujachari and his wife. She didn't place a value on her husband or her husband's uh, Shiksha Guru because her husband's Shiksha Guru was from a lower caste. And she was thinking, you know, oh, well, they're not so important. It's just what's here. And this can happen in, in any kind of, of relationship or any kind of place. You know, if you stay around someplace for a while, no matter how wonderful it is, you may not think it has any value. And I'm sure we've experienced what it's like when people that we live with or work with cease to value what we're doing. And I just had an instance happen to me very recently where I had had a, a lot of materials and books or education. And when I was moving, I asked the head of the community, you know, would you like to have these? You'll be able to use them in the future. And they said no. And now, you know, 10 years later, they just called me and said, can we have your materials on education? And I said, well, when I offered them to you, you didn't value them. I said, I had to give them away to other people. And now you want them. So this is often the case, right? We do some work, we put in some effort, we collect some knowledge, we collect some materials, and the people that we're with don't place any value on them. I, I had a, another experience that uh, I was living in one community, and they, they would ask me to just, you know, give class on the Shastra on a regular basis. But I had developed many seminars for tra- training devotees in different areas, and the local people never would ask me to give them. And I'd say, no, look, I've developed these. And at one point I said to the town president, I said, look, Prabhu, people are paying thousands of dollars for me to fly to another part of the world to present this stuff. I think it would be helpful to the community, and I'm right here. You don't have to pay anything for it. And it was only a month before I moved from the community that then they came and said, oh, can you give your presentations? So that's it's very common, right? If you live in a city, you don't go to see the tourist attractions of your city. You know, when I was living in New York, the only time I went to see the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building was when people came from out of town. <laughs> you know, if you live there, you don't go to see the, the sites. Prabhupada talks about how the people who live by the Ganga they don't bathe by the Ganga near their house, but they'll travel for hundreds of miles to bathe in another part of the Ganga. It's so typical. You know, we may have a temple that's a five-minute walk from where we live. We don't visit that temple, but we'll spend thousands of dollars to go on a pilgrimage to another temple and visit there. So this is familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, but somehow or other, uh, those who are advanced in devotion... They can have both familiarity and respect. Just like Devahuti, she could, have, she could be very familiar with her husband. And at the same time, she never got any kind of contempt. She never had a feeling that she was better than him. But rather, she always had respect for him. Uh, she didn't have this, this concept of pride. And it, it's quite interesting that the only way you're going to have a society of mutual respect is if nobody has any pride. Now, if you don't have any pride, you don't care about whether or not people are respecting you. You respect everybody else. But if everybody's respecting everybody else, then naturally you also get respected. Ravindas Rupabhu talks about this. He talks about how the Vedas don't speak about rights. They speak about responsibilities. So the Vedas don't talk about, okay, you have a right to be respected. You have a right to be treated with dignity. Rather, they say, forget about being treated with respect. 
Forget about being treated with dignity. Just treat everybody else with respect. Now, at first, that sounds terrible. You're thinking, wow, if I respect everybody else, then, you know, I'm going to feel the way Eudistir's thinking that Arjuna feels here. The people who live with me and work with me all the time, they'll become so familiar that they'll be contemptuous. And other people, they'll also be, uh, due to their own pride and their own contempt, they'll also treat me nasty. I mean, if I don't stand up for myself and demand my rights, then everyone's going to walk all over me. But the reality is, first of all, that if you have a society where everyone is thinking this way, let me respect others without demanding respect for myself, then guess what? Everybody will respect everybody else, and you'll get your respect too. The other thing is that there's a law of karma, and that is if I treat others with dignity and respect, then at least generally, unless Krishna has some particular reason to interfere with the natural laws, I'm going to be also treated with respect. Well, that if I want treat others the way you want to be treated. So it's interesting that if I want to get something, the way that the that reality is structured is that if I want to get something, I have to give that thing. You know, but we often do the opposite. We say, well, I'm not going to respect you until you respect me first. You know, I'm tired of, tired of you treating me with disrespect. And therefore, I'm going to treat you with disrespect, and you have to be the first one to be respectful to me, and then I'll be respectful to you. But no, Mahaprabhu is teaching us that first I have to respect others. And, and then I don't need to be concerned that Krishna will take care of my being respected, of my being able to live with dignity. And of course, the devotee ultimately, they get their sense of dignity and satisfaction and equilibrium, not from whether or not uh, the other people in the world treat them with a sense of dignity in this world, but because they're connected with the spiritual world. And in the spiritual world, everybody has a sense of both intimacy and respect towards everybody. Because that's what love is. Love is both intimacy and respect. And because they're connecting with that world, whether or not they get it in this world is inconsequential. It's not that when we say the devotee doesn't care about respect and dignity, that the devotee is living without it. It's that the devotee is getting it from another source. So on several levels, you know, on the level of just society, on the level of karma, and on the level of ultimate spiritual realization, one can live giving respect to others, knowing that unless one is in a situation of mutual respect, one cannot be happy. So one has to be in that situation ultimately on the spiritual level, but even materially, a society of contempt, nobody is happy. It's just not possible, like a fish out of water. Now also Mars Yudhisthira is asking Arjuna not only about whether or not others are treating him with dignity, but asking about his own sense of self-respect. He was saying, you know, maybe you couldn't do what you know ideally you should do. So all of us have some sense of self-respect that's often contingent on to what extent we act according to our ideal self, our idealized view of ourself. You know, I tend to think, okay, I'm this kind of person, I'm that kind of person, I have this role to play, I have that role to play, and the sort of things that I should be doing are like this and this and this. But often we fall short. I mean, I'd say that, at least for myself, that is pretty rare that I'm going to go through a 24-hour day without falling short of my ideals in somehow or other. 
You know, I'm, I'm in my thoughts, in my speech, in my behavior. I'm likely to do things that are prideful or uh, something, you know, inconsiderate in, in so many ways. You know, one will think, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or maybe I should have given this. Just like here, and Prabhupada said that if you have some discrepancy in your action, you may feel despondent. You know, either you'll criticize yourself, or he's saying that other people might criticize one. And then one will lose one's luster. And Maharaj Yudhisthira himself ended up feeling this way after the Battle of Kurukshetra. That he felt, I didn't live up to my ideals just for the throne, just for the sake of the throne. So many humans and so many animals had to die. What kind of a person am I? And it was only after Bhishma counseled him that he was able to get back his equilibrium. Uh, so how is it that the devotee gets a sense of self-respect? Because without self-respect, again, one becomes, as Prabhupada says here, despondent. Now, it can't be that one gets a self sense of self-respect from always being able to be perfect in the materialistic sense, at least not in Kali Yuga, because it's generally not possible. Krishna says that every endeavor is covered with some kind of fault. So even if one does one's duties perfectly, there's going to be some difficulty. King Riga gave away those cows to the brahmanas, and one cow accidentally wandered back and got mixed up with the rest of the herd, and so forth. How can this be helped? How is it possible to go through life without any discrepancies in one's behavior? If our sense of self-dignity and self-respect is dependent on having a life where we never have any discrepancies, we'd be very depressed and despondent people who'd lost all of our luster. I mean, you would hardly be able to function. You'd always be afraid that you do something wrong and you'd always be lamenting over what you've done, done wrong. Right? You'd be looking at the future with fear and looking at the past with lamentation. So chichi kanchichi, always hankering and lamenting. When am I going to become perfect and why was I not perfect in the past? All right, well, this is not actually how the devotees get their sense of self-respect on the material platform. But the devotees have a sense of self-respect because they see themselves on the spiritual platform. They see that I'm a soul. I'm a soul. I'm, I'm nothing to do with this world and the imperfections of this world, that acting through a material body in the world, there's going to be so many discrepancies. Now, that's inevitable. But I myself, I'm actually a spiritual being. And I'm a wonderful person not because... I can do so many things without any discrepancy because I'm perfect in that sense. But I'm a wonderful person just because I'm part of Krishna and Krishna loves me and Krishna values me. And in that I delight, as Krishna says in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, one relishes and rejoices in the self. And when one relishes and rejoices in the self, Krishna says, then one is free from all miseries caused by material contact. So this is the ultimate way that the devotee gains a sense of dignity from knowing that I'm really part of a world where everyone treats each other with intimate respect, with loving respect, and that Krishna loves me. I'm dear to Krishna. Although I'm fallen, although I, my life is basically, you know, one big discrepancy, <laughs> that even the things I do right are full of discrepancies. Still, 
Krishna values me. I'm important. I have meaning. I have significance. Not uh, separate from Krishna. I just like a very tiny screw. It has no meaning. But when it's part of something, then it has a lot of meaning. You know, in and of itself, it has no meaning. I'm, I'm sure sometimes, you know, you go into some drawer and you find some old screws. You don't know what they go with anymore. You know, some little piece of machinery, this or that. And you just take it and throw it away. It has no value. But when it's in the machine, it can be the cause of the machine working or not. And every little part in the machine has some value. We see that every part of Krishna has some value. In this way, the devotee's happy. It's not that the devotee is happy in some impersonal sense. It's not that detachment just means I don't care about respect and dignity. You know, I'm, I'm just going to wallow in, in thinking that I'm a terrible person and I don't care if everybody just steps on me and kicks me around and mistreats me. And You know, what a pathetic idea of spiritual life. How is that attractive? Who would want to be a saintly person and a pure devotee and a self-realized person if what it means is I hate myself and I delight in everyone else hating me? (laughs) That's not the way we see that the great devotees behave. But they have another source of self-dignity and they have another source of community dignity that's on an inner platform. Therefore, Krishna says, one who takes has pleasure within. And the idea is ultimately to be always in trance, in samadhi. As Prabhupada says so wonderfully in Bhagavad Gita, chapter 12, verse 2. And while the devotee is, is shopping and doing this, doing that, doing anything within the world, he's always in samadhi. He always has his relation with Krishna. And once one has one relation with Krishna, then one can also have proper relations with everyone else. Whether other people treat me nicely or not, I mean, I may have to avoid some people. But I never have to have a contemptuous attitude towards anyone. I can respect everyone and care about everyone. How that may be exhibited will be different, of course. I'm not going to care about a tiger by, you know, sleeping in the same room with them. Uh, But I still have love for a tiger and no no contempt for anyone. I don't think I'm better than anyone. I see Vidyavinaya Sampane, Brahmani Govihastani, Shunichaiva Sopakecha, Pandita Samadarshina. I see Samadarshina. We are all equal and equally valued. That Krishna equally values everyone. So, this is a question of living internally in a spiritual world of respect. I mean, it's lovely to try to make some adjustments externally. We're not opposed to that. Certainly, we should learn how to speak with respectful language. That's part of Vedic culture. How to have respectful behavior. I mean, just like in a marriage. You know, it says in the Bhagavatam that the woman should not appear in front of her husband in an unclean state. She should always dress in, in attractive garments and ornaments and... That's a way of having an intimate relationship with respect. That not, oh, because I'm married to this person, I'm going to walk around dressing like a slob because, you know, well, they just love me anyway and it doesn't matter. So there's certainly external things even given in the Shastra 
as to how one can be respectful and not contemptuous, and to how one can have a sense of self-dignity. But those things are not the ultimate solution. They're not everything. The ultimate solution is only to connect on the spiritual platform, to be absorbed in the spiritual world, of which I'm a part. So therefore, these scriptures are supposed to absorb us in the behavior of devotees like the Pandavas. What kind of sweet dealings they had with each other. As Prabhupada said, we should be captivated by this information. We should think, yes, I want to be part of that world and be meditating on it. How is Maharaj Yudhisthira speaking to Arjuna? with such concern and care. And he's the exemplar here of, you know, nonviolent and empathic communication, trying to connect with Arjuna's feelings and needs, trying to make sure that Arjuna has been valued by others and that he values himself, that he's cared for, that he's happy. We see how kind Krishna is to the devotees. Now, one devotee asked me to compile... A, a meditations on love you know? and you think about all the different ways in which Krishna manifests love you know one of my favorites is when uh, when Ram Das Vipra asked Mahaprabhu to lunch this is in South India and when Sri uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu went there Ram Das Vipra hadn't even started the cooking <laughs> You know, when you invite a guest, you generally have them come when the cooking's finished. But Ramdash Vipra hadn't even started. And when Mahaprabhu asked him, he was just saying, How can I cook? How can I cook? You know, Ravan has taken away Sita. <laughs> what will we do? What will we do? So he was absorbed as if he was there in the forest with Ram and Lakshman and Sita. And Mahaprabhu was so overwhelmed with respectful love for this Brahmin, although he was a Ram Bhakta. You know, Mahaprabhu would often convert Ram Bhaktas to Krishna Bhaktas, but he was so overwhelmed with respectful love that later on he found a copy of the Korma Purana and he tore out the original page and had, with the local Brahmins, one second, with the local Brahmins' permission, and he replaced that, he replaced that original page with a handwritten copy. And he took the original page, the reason he took the original is he really wanted to convince. Ram Das Vipra, and he took it to Ram Das and he showed him that the Sita that Ravana kidnapped was a shadow Sita. And that means that Mahaprabhu, he had to take the time to have the page copied, then he had to retrace his steps. You know, he was going on a tour around South India, and he was walking, you know, he didn't have a car. He was going by foot, so it was a lot of endeavor. And he did that just out of respect for Ram Das Vipra. I mean, we can give so many examples. Like Krishna driving Arjuna's uh, chariot. Right? Sevayor ubayor maje. Krishna, you please, in the middle, you drive my chariot into the middle of the armies. And Krishna just does that. Yes, you know. Oh, infallible one. Now, please drive my chariot. So this is the kind of loving respect. I mean, mata parataram nanyat kinchidastijanandaya. There's nothing superior to me, Krishna says. No one is superior to me. As Krishna Das Kaviraj says, Ekali Ishwara Krishna. Everyone else is a servant. Even Balaram is a servant. 
Even Adwaita Acharya is a servant of Mahaprabhu. And he says, Chaitanya Radhasamui. I am simply a servant. Krishna is superior to everyone, but he doesn't have any contempt. He treats Arjuna with such respect, he drives the chariot. He treats this Brahmana with such respect, he brings him back a, a, a page from the Korma Purana. So the devotees meditate on this. The devotees meditate on how the Lord is both the most intimate friend, Surada, and he always stays with the devotee. He's the most familiar. I mean, if anybody knows us, it's Krishna. He really knows us. He's really familiar with us. And he knows all of our, how shall we say, stuff that we don't want anyone to know. Now, each of us has things about ourselves that we kind of wish we didn't even know. We want to speak of other people. You know, we really don't want anyone to know all the things we think or all the things we say or all the things we do. It's so embarrassing. All the discrepancies in our lives, little ones, big ones, whatever. It, we feel so ashamed. Like Yudhisthira is thinking, Arjuna may feel ashamed. But although Krishna knows everything about us, everything, still, that familiarity never degrades into contempt. Never. He never feels contemptuous for, towards us. He always has such respect for us. He always values us. I mean, he values us so much that a little bit of service he regards as something very great. You know, if, if I do something for someone and they don't value what I do, they throw it in the rubbish bin, I'm not going to do it again. But Krishna's not like that. When Bharat Maharaj intentionally, Prabhupada says willfully, purposefully, when he intentionally started to have fake samadhi, it says in the verses, and become attached to a deer, Krishna didn't neglect him. Krishna didn't think, oh, who is this? No. Krishna allowed him in the body, when he took the body of a deer, to remember his past life. And Krishna gave him impetus to achieve perfection very quickly. When Ajamil turned his back on Krishna and uh, became a criminal, Krishna didn't neglect him. Krishna didn't become contemptuous, but he induced him from within. Give your son the, my name of Narayana so you can come back to me very quickly. So by meditating on how much Krishna is treating every living entity with dignity and respect and at the same time very intimate love, then we can feel satisfied. And then even if people in the world don't treat us with dignity, and some people are always going to treat us with disrespect. Or even if we ourselves do so many things, so many discrepancies for which we feel ashamed and for which we uh, may have a tendency to go into the mode of ignorance and into self-hatred, uh, rather we just remember that Krishna loves me, Krishna values me, and Krishna is helping me to become my real self. He's helping me to become who I really am. And from that platform, we also can treat other people with respect, whether we're intimate with them or not. We can treat everyone else with dignity. We no longer have to feel that the way that to treat ourselves with respect is by putting others down. Now, we don't need to be contemptuous towards others in order to have some twisted, perverted sense of feeling good about ourselves. 
And as we act like this, then we can enter into higher levels of bhakti. Amani na kirtiriya sarahari. We can only think of Krishna always and chant Krishna's name always when we come to this level of bhakti, where I'm actually from a deep spiritual platform able to show respect to others and able to have my own inner sense of dignity by connection with Krishna. And by doing that, then I can come to everything that we've come to Krishna consciousness for. Taste and ecstasy and love of God and reawakening of our original spiritual position. Those are all the gifts available for one who's mastered the secret of Amanina Manadena. This is a very nice exchange here between Yudhisthir and Arjuna. So any questions, comments, corrections, additions, subtractions? Brother Irmala, thank you for class as always. Uh, I want to ask a question. You talked about how we have a tendency to take things cheaply. Well, Lord Chaitanya, Nichananda, and the associates have described, broke into the storehouse of love of God and to distribute indiscriminately. And Prabhupada has come to the Western world to give us those gifts in the form of his instructions, in the form of our society, in the form of his literatures, etc. Um, this is the most precious, valuable commodity. How do we, uh, how do we prevent ourselves from taking it cheaply? Yeah, isn't that a problem? Because we we see so many examples of devotees just you know leaving and etc. How do we protect ourselves? It really is a problem, isn't it? We think because the holy name is free and I can take it anywhere and I can say it anywhere that it's not the most valuable touchstone. So how do we value it? Well, therefore we have sadhana bhakti. Sadhana bhakti is that the spiritual master teaches us to go through the external motions of valuing something even though we don't really value it yet. So a lot of the rules and regulations of deity worship are also like that. There are systems by which you go through some rituals of purity, you go through, you go through some procedures to give you a sense that what you have is valuable. You know, all of the cleanliness rituals. You know, what in what part of our life do we have to go through? I guess doctors, when they do like a surgical operation, you know, they have also these sort of cleanliness rituals. But what are they, you know, what are they for? I mean, really, when you have a material body, how clean are you going to be, honestly? I mean, even if you take a shower and brush your teeth and so forth and do achman, does that mean that I'm, my material body is pure? <coughs> so what are those things there for? They're there so that we have a sense of value. This is something special. You know, taking care of the deity is special. This is not just some sort of, you know, carved statue. And the same thing with having a time when we're chanting. Okay, I have this time of the day. The most valuable time of the day, especially, if possible, first thing in the morning, you know, when I'm at my brightest and most alert and everything's clear and calm and the world is peaceful and people haven't started running around yet doing their jobs, the time of the day when I would want to give to that which is most important to me, you know, most valuable and the most sharp. And then what do I give it to? I give it to the holy name. 
So those sorts of external behaviors, you know, before we take prasadam, offering obeisances, saying some prayer, meditating on, oh, this is the food that Krishna ate. Some sort of external ritual that reminds us. Of course, you can say that begs the question because those rituals we could also become familiar with. Okay, here's the mantras that I chant, here's the little prayer that I say, and here's the little one thing that I do, you know. Right, I was thinking about that with putting on tilak the other day. You know, I thought, what am I saying? I'm saying all holy names, which are fully the presence of the Lord. You know, it's not just like, oh, no, I remember after um, our God brother Shiddhar Marsh passed, the Kavi Chandramar said, I remember him whenever I put on tilak. And I said, oh, why? And he said, well, Om Shiddharaya Namaha. I was like, oh, yeah. So I think another way we can stop from becoming familiar is, of course, you mean you and all this, good association, hearing, 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 over and over and over again. This is something, this, you have this is special, you have this is, this is something special, take care of it, take care of it. I mean, that's what we do with children in school, you know, over and over and over again. We have to say, you know, education is important <laughs> because they forget. After an hour, they forget. You've got to remind them again. Oh, yeah, it's important. Oh, yeah, right, it's important. <laughs> And, of course, the more we do it with attention, then the more we'll realize. Uh, the more it won't be just some sounds we're making or some ritual we're going through, but we'll actually touch it on a deep level. But it's something we have to guard against a lot. You know, this idea of just, oh, yeah, you know, this is the mantras I'm chanting, get them done, pull down the beads, you know, wave the fan in front of the deities, eat the burfi, okay, whatever. <laughs> and, and not... Uh, really take advantage of it so that's uh, it's to be expected but at the same time we should make some effort through hearing through association through keeping these these sort of rituals and that we really do have something that's very special I, I have a question. Um, this is coming from Radhana Rupini. She's not able to um, uh, access the voice. Um, she would like to know if um, if there is um, familiar and, and, and contempt in a relationship, how to reverse that? Mm. That's a very important question because, as I said, the main uh, measure of health in a relationship is whether or not there's contempt. Well, contempt means I think I'm better than you. That's the essence of contempt. You know, that when I'm familiar with someone, I start to see their faults. We all have faults. And I focus on their faults. I had one friend say to me, well, I'd like to find something to respect in my husband, but I just can't find anything. And anything I find, you know, it's not important things. The only thing good about him are unimportant things. So I said, well, that's very sad. <laughs> you know, if you really meditate on anybody, you'll find that they have some good qualities. Let's see if I can find, there's a really nice quote by Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur. Okay, here we go. This is from the fourth canto. This is in relation, this is from 4412. This is in relationship, I'm uh, pretty sure, to Daksha's sacrifice. 
And Vishwanath Chagavati Thakur says that there's four kinds of good persons and four kinds of bad persons. And the good person called Mahat sees others' fault as capable of being transformed into good qualities. So they say, yes, this is a fault, but it could be a good quality. Uh, just like Chintamani told uh, Bilva Mangala Thakur that this fault you have of being so attached to me that you're going to swim on a corpse across the river and climb a snake up my wall, if you just use that same determination for Krishna, it would be a good quality. And I'll, I'll tell you frankly that every fault is just the flip side of a good quality. Okay, next level of good person. They overlook the faults and they just see the good. So they know the faults are there, but they, they find some good to see in the midst of the fault, and that's all they focus on. They forget about the faults. Next level of good person. They magnify small good qualities and don't even see any faults. So the second level, they know about the faults, but they neglect them and focus on the good. The next one, they don't even see the faults. They don't even notice the faults. They take very small good qualities and they enlarge them. And the final one, they see only good qualities even where there aren't any. So even somebody who has only faults, uh, somehow they see only good qualities. They, they change their interpretation. Those are good people, four levels of good people. Then there's four levels of bad people. So the bottom level of bad person, called the asadu, they see others' good qualities as capable of being transformed into faults. <laughs> so they see, well, yeah, you know, you're really devoted to your service, but you can become equally devoted to a prostitute, the opposite of chintamani. The next level, they overlook the good and, and just see the faults. So they're aware of the good, but they ignore that, and they focus their attention on the faults. Next level of bad person, they don't see any good in someone else. They take small faults, and they magnify them. And the last level of bad person, that even if someone has no faults, they see only faults. And Vishnu Chagavati Thakur also gives examples of each. So we can find out, you know, where do I fit on this line? How do I tend to see people, especially people that I have an intimate relationship with? And then practice becoming a higher and higher level of good person. At least we can see others' faults as being capable of being transformed into good qualities. At least we can function on the bottom level of good person. That because every, every bad quality is simply a good quality misapplied. And this is a question of making a deliberate attempt to do it. To realize that the way I perceive things is not truth. The way I perceive things is simply the way I perceive things. It's, and I'm choosing to perceive things in a certain way. It's not that this person is a bad person. It's that I'm choosing to perceive them in that way. And I can change my way of perceiving people if I want to by practice, by making a concerted effort that this is the way I'm going to see them instead. It can be done. And it can be done actually fairly rapidly. Within one or two weeks, you can change the way you see somebody if you focus on seeing their faults as potential good. Or if you focus on the good in them and don't take the faults so seriously. After all, that's what I want other people to do for me. I know that I'm riddled with faults. 
But what I want people to do is I want people to look at my faults and say, oh, they're not so serious. And look at, look at whatever good I do and say, oh, yeah, that's the thing I want to focus on. That's how I want others to treat me. You know, so if, if I can look that way at myself, I mean, some people can't look that way at themselves because they're depressed, but most of us, that's how we get through the day. We focus on what we do that's good. We, we consider our faults not so significant. Or we see, you know, how I can turn this fault into a good quality. So we already know how to do this, again, unless we have real problems with self-esteem, which some people do. And then we just have to give for, to others the same charity that we give to ourselves, And you just do it by practice. It's really not hard to do. It's really not hard to do. I mean, let's say somebody comes to you and they're really, you know, some devotee, other devotee comes and they're really harsh and, and rude. And you can think, well, you know, they're really determined to get their service done. Or you can think, well, you know, maybe this person's really hurting inside and they're just, you know, they, they're hankering for, for Krishna to love them and they're not feeling it and therefore they're feeling despondent. How wonderful it is. And ultimately, every living entity is hankering for Krishna. So therefore, it's po- that's why it's possible to see everyone is all good even if they're riddled with faults from an external platform. It's uh, Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur's purport to 4412. Um, let's take a look at, at how Prabhupada discusses that. I think he discusses it in a very brief way. It's, uh, okay, four. One benefit of doing class on my computer is that I can look these things up instantly. Okay. Yes. What Prabhupada says here, um, he says there are some highly qualified persons who accept only the good quality of others. Among the uncommonly good souls, there are still gradations. So Prabhupada refers to Vishnu Chakravati Thakur's purport, but he doesn't go through all of the lists in his own purport. You, You can see he's referencing it. Vishnu Chakravati Thakur gives examples of, of each of them also. So he lists it and then he gives an example of each. That was, that was really helpful. Yeah, I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate way to see good in others is to see, just like what George Harrison wrote in the beginning of Krishna book, he said, everyone is always looking for Krishna. Some don't realize that they are, but they are. And you really can see that whatever someone does, they're looking for Krishna. There's one lecture where Prabhupada talked about murderers. And he said that, that what they're trying to enjoy is a ghastly rasa with Krishna. They're just doing it in the wrong way. And that's it. 
number of wonderful places where Prabhupada says that the only thing that exists are the, those 12 rasas. And ultimately, we're trying to enjoy those rasas with Krishna. But instead of enjoying those rasas with Krishna, I'm, trying, I'm enjoying those rasas with Krishna with Krishna's material energy as if I was Krishna. <laughs> I'm, take, I'm trying to take the role of Krishna, thinking Krishna's material energy is going to give me one of those 12 rasas. Instead of that I'm Krishna's servant and I'm going to have those 12 rasas with Krishna. So what I want is something good. Everyone is always looking for something good. And the way they're going about it may be they may be running in the wrong direction. I may be looking for the water in the desert. But the fact that I'm looking for water is a good thing. And I'm looking for water in the desert because, as Prabhupada says, I have a poor fund of knowledge. Prabhupada's very poetic way of saying, I'm ignorant. I have a poor fund of knowledge. So just like you have a bank account, you know, if your bank account is poor in money, I have a poor, a poor fund of money. I have a poor kitchen of food, you know. So if somebody's poor, if you see somebody who was, is, they're trying to dress themselves nicely, let's say. Just like when we were recently in India, we were trying to work with these kids from the slums. So they get some donated clothes. And they have a desire to dress themselves nicely. They want to be presentable. But because they have a poor fund of clothes they can't do it very well. And the outfits they put together sometimes look a little bizarre. So in the same way, everybody is trying to find Krishna. But if they don't have enough knowledge in their fund, if they look in, and I get this visual of this guy with this bag, this money bag, and he looks in his money bag and there's no money in it, his poor fund of knowledge. So if they look in their bag of knowledge, they don't know how to get what they want. So how can I feel, you know, just because there happens to be money in my bag, where did my knowledge come from? I didn't earn it. My knowledge came from my, from, from my guru. It came from the Shastras. It was given to me as a gift. Undeserving. So if I've got money as an undeserved gift and someone else doesn't have it, I can feel superior to them? Uh, no, actually, then I should just give also, or at least I feel some compassion that this person in trying to get Krishna doesn't have the knowledge as to how to get Krishna, and therefore they're suffering, and therefore they're doing so many things that are foolish and ultimately hurting themselves. So this way one can see only good qualities in others. All right, it is getting late here. I think I need to go. Thank you very much. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Thank you.